In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am Andrew, your co-host, and if there's one thing that I really want to take away from this movie, it's how to dance like Al Pacino <laughs> in the club. Uh, that's that's what I want to... <laughs> oh, I wish our listeners could see what, you get, what you're doing right now <laughs> with your arm movements. It's just, so powerful. It, yeah, oh man, it's... yeah. Um, this is Phil, your other co-host, and there's so much to take away from this movie that we're going to talk about today. I'm just going to start with the music, which has the dubious distinction of being beloved by a lot of fans of this film, mm. but also being nominated for, if not winning, the most intrusive music award at the Raspberries <laughs> in 1981. Oh. Uh, and it's by Jack Nietzsche, who I really like. He's done some really yeah. good work. Yeah, I feel you, though. Uh, the film that we're talking about today is Cruising. Uh, it is a, a 1980 film by William Friedkin, the director, the famous uh, director of The Exorcist, amongst many other things. Uh, and our guest who has brought this film to us is Kathleen. Say hi to everybody, Kathleen. Hello, I'm hey. Kathleen. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming on the show, Kathleen. Uh, we'll talk about the movie itself in just a minute. But before we do, I want to tell you how you can find us on the web. You can go to our website, which is at www.in-the-q. That's the letter q.com. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah, know why that suddenly sounded strange to me. It just sounded weird. Uh, but that's it. And that's where you need to find us. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook by going uh, to Facebook and searching for In the Q, Q-U-E-U-E. Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. Uh, on either of those places, you can leave us comments and uh, let us know how you feel about the podcast. Or you can give us suggestions and we'll have you on the show, much like Kathleen is today. And we will talk about the film that you have suggested. And we'll talk about it with you. Uh, very exciting. We love doing it. Um, you can also engage us in conversation on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ITQ Podcast. And you can find us on any number of different uh, podcast aggregating sites or apps, uh, such mm -hmm. as iTunes, uh, Podcast, Overcast, all of the above. Uh, you can subscribe to our podcast and get every single episode delivered right to you. And that's the whole kit and caboodle, right? That's it. When you say I think you got everything. So, uh, as I said before, today's film is cruising. From William Friedkin. We've been finding parts of bodies floating in the river. Comes a psychological thriller. Why don't we take a walk? Starring Academy Award winner Al Pacino. How'd you like to disappear? Go undercover. Disappear? The victim was at about ten pieces. He's a bad dude. He's a scumbag. You made me do that. Things happening to me, you know? A controversial and landmark film. Why don't you want me anymore? What I'm doing is affecting me. About a New York subculture being terrorized by one of its own. This is stuff going down. You know what you have to do. Now I'm afraid. Me, 
uh, yeah, that's uh, the trailer for Cruising. Uh, as I said, a film directed by William Friedkin uh, that was released in the year 1980, starring Al Pacino and Paul Sorvino. Those are probably the most prominent uh, actors. And Karen Allen uh, in a very small role. Yeah. Um, she was actually left in the dark for most of the production, and she didn't really know what the movie was about, which was <laughs> intentional on the director's part to sort of keep her... her unaware of uh of what al pacino's character was doing. well yeah the yeah, character she herself said she wouldn't wouldn't do that again yeah because <laughs> what a lousy way to make a film right <laughs> yeah yeah to have no idea what's going on in the rest of the film yeah. um yeah so uh I'll, I'll give uh folks a really brief uh summary of what the film is about um essentially there is a serial killer on the loose in new york city uh, he's been chopping up young, healthy, brunette men. Uh, and uh, the cops are hot on his tail, but uh, they can't seem to crack the case. So they bring in Al Pacino's character, uh, whose name is Steve Burns, uh, a.k.a. John Forbes. John, For- is John Forbes name? is his undercover name, yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> And... He is sent undercover into the gay underworld of New York City in the late 70s uh, in order to sort of smoke out this serial killer because the serial killer appears to be uh, soliciting these men at various clubs around the city. And uh, and the, the film that follows is, in essence, a police procedural uh, of a man going undercover but uh, as he goes undercover, it starts to tear him apart because this this wild and crazy underworld is is just driving him insane. Uh, it's a as the movie as the trailer that you just heard said it's a very controversial film, and we'll get to talking about it in a minute. But before we do, Kathleen, I want to know why this film, why you suggested it, and why you want to talk about it on this podcast. Well, yeah, I feel like when I introduce myself, it's like introducing myself to a class. My name is Kathleen, and I'll tell you one thing about myself. It's <laughs> that I'm obsessed with the movie Cruising. I, I didn't actually suggest talking about it. I was talking about it at a party, and Phil said, well, I've never seen it. It seems like something worthwhile, and I, it's taken me a while to get up the courage because, man, it's, it's a funny movie. I worked at a video store in from about the year 2000 to about 2004 and came to this movie from watching the celluloid closet which oh, has yeah. a compendium of lots of different movies that are mm-hmm. important in gay and lesbian film and then i realized that we had a vhs copy of it at my video store oh uh, in the celluloid closet it references the movie in a completely negative way it has a couple clips and then it shows people protesting it and then it says there were other positive movies, but this one showed people to fear homosexuals and it's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. So I said, it's time. It's time for me to watch it. <laughs> I have to see this. It, it seems like a pretty one-sided explanation of it. And I like that documentary. So I took it home and watched it and was completely confounded, but also <laughs> entranced by it. And then started looking online to see what I could find out about it. Cause the DVD wasn't out. The DVD didn't come out until 2007, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah, yeah. 10 years ago. And 
uh, found this article written by two guys. I haven't been able to find that article again. I really looked for it a lot. But they're the same guys who made the YouTube videos Boy Toys, which is kind of mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. Todd Haynes superstar kind of reenactment with Barbie dolls yeah. of this movie. So I knew that there were some people who were even more obsessed with it <laughs> than I had been. So, so yeah, so I watched it more and then as it seeped into me, I just keep on thinking about it in odd moments when things come up in the news or in moments of personal weirdness. Like, well, Let me ask your, your uh, <laughs> dare I say, obsession with this film. Mm-hmm. It, is, does it have any ironic component to it? Or do you believe this really is a uh, misunderstood masterpiece? No, I don't think that it's a masterpiece at all. <laughs> I, I mean... I, if I had to say on balance, it's probably 51% or more irony, but in a way that my whole life is kind of ironic. Like you do things, they don't make sense. And then you try to find meaning in it later on. And my life is not a masterpiece, but it's, it's just a movie that I revisit and, you know, feel a lot of different ways about it. I'm not making fun of it. That's not what I'm here to do, but it does have some really odd <laughs> odd pieces to it that are either not intentional or woefully misguided or just <laughs> standalone nightmare like dream logic like i would I say know. that components <laughs> of, of cruising like when it, when it first starts and it gets going um i th- i found it really compelling and i thought yeah. that it was actually um fascinating especially because when it starts it it has the kind of a feel of like an old film like from the 40s or 50s even um and i say that only because the movie it focuses on this like community of characters the actual hero doesn't make an appearance until about 15 minutes into the film that's Al Pacino's character. Yeah. Like it's kind of starts off and it shows you basically what's going on in the neighborhood. You've got these two minor characters of these policemen. You've got these two cross-dressing men who have this interaction with them. Mm-hmm. And also the, uh, the murders that take place are kind of a, an interesting and almost refreshing uh, counterintuitive approach to the traditional slasher film where a woman is being victimized by a killer. And often those take place in New York City, or they did at the time, like Maniac, which came out the same year, also starring Joe Spinell. Um, So when when the movie began, I was like, this is so, uh, like, I mean, it seems so out of place for a 1980 film to be so bleak and and frank (laughs) in its discussion about these issues. Yeah. Uh, So I was like, I was really caught up with it. But as it went on and when it concluded it left something to be desired, I thought. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that there were points <laughs> that you were really compelled by it. Well, yeah. Yeah, and, not, not like interior leather bar, though. I, can't, I was never com- compelled. <laughs> well, we'll get to talking that. about that in a little bit. As a companion piece to this, we watched the James Franco-helmed... Uh, well, he, he didn't direct <laughs> it, I guess, but... Uh, the James... He has a credit for co-directing it, but I don't know what mm-hmm. he did. It didn't seem like he was I mean, doing much in that film, but... <laughs> Uh, no, it just kind of threw all these people together and said, do something and I'll get the credit for it. Yeah, where nobody knew what was happening on the day of. Um, yeah. Anyway. Essentially, the, the this film, Cruising, was uh, cut down by 40 minutes, purportedly. 
in order to not receive an X rating from the ratings board. Mm-hmm. Uh, though truthfully, after having watched this film, I can't imagine what 40 minutes would add to it. Uh, yeah. And and what 40 minutes... I mean, like, other... Th- I, I guess that's part of why James Franco's imagination runs wild. And he's like, well, clearly they must have just been filming hardcore pornography that whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that's part of the, the urban legend. I don't know. But uh, Kathleen, do you do you know like what the missing footage consisted of? I I don't I I mean I've looked into it. I huh. don't have any special knowledge about that. But I mean they filmed a lot just in clubs. But like Andrew said, I don't know what else it could have added to the plot except just having a record of that kind of party. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like the I, I remember. Do you remember Phil when uh, when we were in uh, film school together? John Landis came and he was talking about the Blues Brothers 2000 and making that film, uh-huh. and how when he made that film, it wasn't because he wanted to make a film really. It's just because he wanted a record of all of these great musicians on film, so that yeah. it, it, you know for posterity. Uh, so You're maybe, saying that's what William Friedkin was doing with gay sex? Maybe. Well, it's kind of like the Rat Pack of yeah. them leather bars. Yeah. Like, just want to have a bunch of guys get together, and have a good time, and that's a movie. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. why not? Why Frank not? Sinatra would be down with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I Phil, I I've kind of felt the same way that you did. It, it started out, and it really seemed like a very conventional '70s slash '80s police procedural i mean it it felt a little bit like dirty harry it felt a little bit like you know uh, any of those uh movies that were kind of de rigueur at the of the period but uh it's really once he kind of goes into the underworld so to speak uh that it sort of loses itself i i guess it loses focus i would say yeah it it really at some point in the in the i'd say probably about around the 45 minute mark or so maybe even the hour mark it just sort of it doesn't feel as urgent anymore it doesn't feel that there's this imminent danger uh that is you know right on us it actually reminded me in some ways of some of the uh Dario Argento films the uh mm-hmm. the kind of Italian Italian giallo uh, classic slasher films, um, it, both in the in the in the way that it presented the the murder and the killer and all of those things, and also in the the complete loss of focus, which I think happens with Dario Argento sometimes. Well, mm-hmm. Dario Argento either gets laser focused and stays with something for much too long, or he just like loses himself. Um, yeah, in this movie, when it should be ramping up, the tension should be getting tighter. It turns into this zany kind of cat and mouse thing where he's chasing someone who may or may not be the killer. I mean, there may be multiple killers. There's a lot of confusion yeah. in that. But when he's chasing this one guy, he's just peeking up over walls and grinning at him. And yeah, in a way that's silly for a police officer. Like, oh, I was in your room and now I'm winking at you from across the road. Yeah, it's not a, a good taunt. Not yeah, a good look, and, but... and it becomes so bizarre because he is simultaneously uh, going mad, and in this uh, context, going mad means questioning your own sexuality. Sure. Uh, 
and also uh, still hot on the case, you know, on the on the thing. And I don't think it ever I don't think it balances those two things very well. I think it sort of swings wildly from one to the other. Uh, these these moments where he's at home with his girlfriend and he is, you know, aggressively having sex with her or he is yeah. talking about how I can't tell you what's going on, but it's driving me insane. Uh, coupled with these, uh, as you were saying, Kathleen, <laughs> these moments where he's kind of playing this cat and mouse and like, yeah, it's just, uh, what I, I feel. If... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I mean, about this movie, because so many people have gone over and over saying that it's an indictment of, you know, gay culture or something. It could read much more clearly as indictment of police culture like yeah. the cops are a mess the whole nypd like <laughs> interrogation scene like all of this is just these cops are terrible at their job yeah except for paul sorvino who you know has this sort of hang dog like he's seen it all he's really trying to do a good <laughs> job yeah and al pacino he's trying his best but he's he's a mess but then ed o'neill <laughs> a terrible cop. Yeah. What about the gigantic black man in the jockstrap who appears all of a sudden just to it was, punch yeah, the, the guy? And then African American <laughs> character with a role in the movie. Yeah, movie is so weirdly homogenous. Like everyone looks like Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah. And so it's you know police and sort of white male culture that's more of it than I feel like gay culture because when it moves away from the leather bars, the movie just kind of falls falls apart. Yeah, and, and I admit I... there is a lot of fascination with those leather bars, and this movie is kind of an education for me because I remember growing up in the '80s and seeing in movies like Police Academy and After Hours, where there would be this like funny comic relief of the mustachioed guy in the biker uh, hat and leather gear, you know, sometimes kissing another man, and I was like is this some kind of really gross stereotype? But, <laughs> but it, I mean, I mean, is this like an actual subculture? And then this movie is full of all these guys. And I guess it's a legit thing, or it was once a legit thing to dress up like that. I mean, this movie probably was largely responsible for a lot of those parodies that followed in the 80s. Oh, I'm sure. This yeah. movie's notorious. It is but notorious. They're very macho, like it's very testosterone-driven. I just wanted to also add, like, I think maybe one reason why this movie is so vilified by the gay community is William Friedkin and other filmmakers, when they they sometimes make films about the police and about a, a detective or a driven man of the law who gets caught up in something that proves his downfall. And oftentimes it's drugs or it's corruption. Yeah. But this film is basically saying that homosexuality is what did this character in. And it kind of refers to it as a, uh, like a malice or like a malady that he got caught up in. And it, and it just drove him topsy-turvy, you know? Yeah. And I would say that th that ultimately, um, and I think that we can issue a spoiler alert, uh, spoiler alert, uh, spoiler warning at this point, spoiler alert, whatever we want to call it. Um, 
because I'd like to talk about the end of this film because I found it to be mm-hmm. confounding in a yeah that's fine with me like, yeah, I'd love to yeah. talk about it too yeah so anybody who has not seen this film if you're interested in seeing it just uh, turn off the podcast right now join us for our next podcast go see cruising come back to this one if you want to uh, but we're going to talk about the end of this film because as you say Phil uh, it it does sort of quote unquote prove to be his downfall and truthfully I throughout the film I didn't like I understood that the sort of gay underworld of the late 70s early 80s was portrayed in a a harsh and and kind of terrifying context throughout most of this film Uh, but to some extent you could probably chalk that up to the character himself and his sort of you know macho uh, presentation like he would be afraid of this world he would be you know, if, if, if we're talking about a, a film that's largely subjective from his point of view, it mm-hmm. sort of makes sense for him to be frightened by this culture. Yeah, and he's in a really lonely place portraying yeah. this guy that he isn't. Yeah, because he can't tell anybody about it. Um, the only person yeah, that even and, knows that he's undercover is Paul Sorvino. And um, actually, the film does not really address how far he's supposed to go, does it? Like, no. in a situation no. where he's with a guy... They don't talk about what he is actually obligated to do to get information. Well, I think it's implied in, a, in one of those conversations he has with Paul Sorvino, it's implied that he should go as far as it goes to not blow his, as, as it takes to not blow his cover, essentially. But it's, it's never explicitly stated. <laughs> yeah, I don't know whose idea it was for Al Pacino to, or, you know, John Forbes yes. to <laughs> yeah. lead Skip Lee into a hotel room and be like, tie me up. That's real entrapment like i'm yeah. gonna take off clothes and i'm gonna tell you to time and, and the guy that he you know at that point thinks is the killer who's not he's like man this is weird yeah. you're too weird for me why are you telling me to tie you up yeah 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 so yeah he but, goes into it hard but. yeah he goes into it very hard and the end of this film sort of i mean i the end of this film uh, frustrated me and made me think, well, what the, what the heck was all of this about? Like, because as you say, Phil, it, it definitely paints, uh, a negative portrait of the idea of homosexuality. It suddenly, maybe not suddenly, but it really equates homosexuality with psychopathy. Yeah. It's like, this does him in his crazy. Yeah. It turns him into a, a a crazed killer essentially, because uh, tell me if I'm reading this wrong, both of you, but he's, he's taken over the role of the killer at the end of the movie. Right. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. I, I, I got the same impression the way that the ending was done, but, but that doesn't make any sense. How can that be? (laughs) It doesn't. I mean, there's, there are a lot of things that are put into this movie to intentionally, make things muddy and unclear in a completely unhelpful, not artistic way. Like (laughs) there, the, the, the killer at the beginning of the movie, someone who stabs someone else comes back later on as someone who was killed in the park Mm. by someone else who was a killer. Like, and so there are all these Al Pacino alikes kind of going in and out of, of the scene and so, I mean, yeah, it looks like Al Pacino kills Ted at the end. 
Yeah. But from watching it so many times and trying to find ways, not necessarily to justify it because it's it's a messed up movie, but Al Pacino is already a bizarre person. I mean, he's just a blank at yeah. the beginning of the movie. Because some people say that, oh, you, you give him a girlfriend and you make him kind of sympathetic and he's the person that you identify at the beginning of the movie. He's not. You don't... You don't identify with Al Pacino. The most relatable person in the movie is Ted, his yeah. neighbor, who's just like a friendly guy. He's a playwright. He yep. Yeah, I thought Ted was actually a, a pretty positive portrayal yeah. of, the, of a gay character, especially considering the movie is full of not positive portrayals. <laughs> well, yeah. the yeah. not positive portrayals is that there's a murderer. So, I mean, murder is bad. And then Al Pacino is not a very good cop. But I don't necessarily feel like, I mean, lots of people interpret it from the movie. But if you strictly watch it, it's, yeah, they're pretty straightforward portrayals of, of gay people that aren't judgmental. It's just that it's about killers. And it's not the greatest so, way to put a movie together in 1980. Yeah. So here's a question I have. So... I mean, maybe this sort of like psychically prefigures the AIDS epidemic in a weird way. Um, the idea yeah. that something horrible is sort of being transmitted from one person to the other. But this would have been before the. It is, yeah. Thankfully, the AIDS epidemic. Because yeah. then it would have just been <laughs> an AIDS metaphor, and yeah. that would have been even messier. Yeah, and and probably a lot more ethically questionable. Yeah. Um, but, oh, there's one thing that I have to get on record. Oh, yeah, yeah. About yeah, movie, go for it. Is that when, when Al Pacino goes to the club on the night that they're having the cop theme party. Yeah. Everyone's dressed up like cops. There are these huge handcuffs hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's incredible, just sort of tableau of people. But the sound that Al Pacino makes when he gets to the bouncer and the bouncer looks him up and down and he says, are you a cop? And Al Pacino says what like <laughs> complete but like is my cover blown how does he know i'm a cop am what do i say like why is this and then it's just because he's not dressed like a cop yeah the guy is saying you gotta get out of here but just that note of panic and the way he says what that's yeah. one of the things from this movie that pops up in my head a lot of times in situations where i'm like have i completely misread everything and i is yeah am i just falling apart here <laughs> So just yeah. that sound goes no, it was... a lot. Look for that next time you watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was amazing, for sure. Um, that was also a very strange scene. Mm -hmm. um, just the way that that interaction unfolds is like such a bizarre... Like, it doesn't seem like a real human being conversation is happening. No. It's just like, no. it's so stilted and, and weird. Yeah, um, most of the dialogue is, is pretty terrible Yeah, in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, but But... With regard to that, uh, the idea of like the killer taking over for the killer taking over for the killer, mm -hmm. um, it seems weird to me. I mean, it seems weird to me to begin with, but it especially seems weird to me because the thing that the killer whispers in the ear of his victim is always, you made me do this, mm -hmm. right? Or some variation on that. Uh, and he, he whispers that after the killer that we see in the beginning of the film is killed in the park by somebody who chases him around. He whispers in his ear, you made me do this. Yeah. So it was so hard to get a handle on it. And then when we see the, 
when we find out who the killer, the quote unquote killer is, when Pacino catches up to him, he doesn't look like the killer that we had seen earlier in the nope. film. And, oh man, what a weird. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, just, it's not, yeah. not a strong conceit for. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know what he's trying to. Do you think it? Do you think it has something to do with like the idea that you, you like that, Gainus is a disease that you pass on or some horribly misguided like way of the, thinking it follows yeah like the it follows <laughs> sexuality well i think yeah. if, you, if you look at a movie like uh the imaginarium of dr parnassus or yeah. whoa or yeah. uh that obscure object of desire by louise Bunuel, where you've got sure. multiple actors playing the same character it's done with such an obvious intentionality and it they let they they make it transparent to the viewer what they're doing in this case if that's what William Friedkin was doing it's not intentional enough to really make it anything other than confusing yeah yeah there are so I share your confusion that happened <laughs> after the fact of making this movie that sort of retroactively William Friedkin tried to say it was an artistic choice like everything is overdubbed like everything is ADR yeah. because partly because protests going on during the movie ruined all of the sound anyway like yeah, the right. scenes shot oh, in wow. the apartment and everything. There were people who'd rented the apartment next door because they found out where they were shooting. There's banging on the wall and blowing air horns and stuff like that. So Whoa. some of the killers all have the same voice and it's the voice of the dad. Like it, I mean, which, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but well, it also, like that also artistic choice in the editing room where he was like, I'm <laughs> going to make this into something. Yeah. Where he's like, well, we spent the money. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's make it work. Yeah, yeah. I think that like also. The real enemy here is like bad Freudian and Jungian psychoanalysis and bad cops and bad dads. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I, there's maybe a case to be made there. I don't know. But do we ever even get into the world of uh, Pacino's dad in the in the film? Or not his dad, but the ostensible killer's, killer's dad, dad. yeah that's true Ryan. yeah yeah we yeah. meet him in the park and he's already dead and then it turns into a ghost story it's yeah it's a disaster oh, what a mess. <laughs> the things that i like to do on this podcast is just kind of share a little love for movies that i like and and <laughs> talk them up and and you know just kind of introduce them to to new people who may not be familiar i'd like to do the exact opposite now oh. if i may and oh. introduce interior leather bar into oh, the conversation. Oh yes, yeah. Okay, oh. let's. Because this is a do. movie that Kathleen inadvertently recommended to us, <laughs> and I took I took her for I took her at face value and assumed that she really wanted us to see it. In actuality, it was kind of like a sarcastic thing, but it didn't read too well because it was written, and I didn't get the sarcasm. So I, yeah. Andrew and I both watched this movie, which is only an hour long. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a. It's an abomination, co-directed by James <laughs> Franco, and uh, it. When I looked into it, I was like, "Oh, oh, this is about James Franco assembling a crew of actors to reenact the the missing forty minutes of the footage that was cut out of cruising, because there was supposedly a forty-page section of the script that was excised by the MPAA." Which is which is supposedly, I mean, uh, which is ostensibly like an interesting concept sure. right but that's, they don't do it no they don't do it at all <laughs> that's not what the movie's about at all no the movie is about all these actors coming together talking to each other and wondering what the hell they're doing 
Like, what is what does James Franco want us to do? I don't know. Have you ever done a gay scene? No. Would you ever do one? Yeah, I think so. Would you ever kiss a guy? Yeah. And then like just talking about nothing. And there and let's let's get this out there. These are unpaid actors who have been brought James together. James Franco didn't even pay them. What a douche. He didn't even pay them. Yeah. He brought them all together, didn't tell them what they were doing or what they were making, and then had them quite literally perform explicit sex acts on camera. Yep, they show it. And then and then that's like that's the and end of it. Disappears from the film. I, I expected there would be some out. kind of final word from him, but like there's midway about midway through the movie, there's a conversation between him and this lead actor. Val. And yeah. and James Franco is like, I don't know what this is about. Yeah. No, it's like, you know, sex. I mean, there's so much violence in movies, but there's no sex. Yeah. I don't know. You're just supposed to blend in. You're like Di Pacino. Yeah, just do whatever. Yeah. Exactly. And then he and then he yeah. disappears from the movie. And and at the end, it says directed by James Franco. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Paul Sorvino is saying, "How would you like to disappear?" Like, yeah, this is an appropriate thing to say. But James Franco is the real Steve Burns. Like his yeah. sort of dallying with his own questions about his sexuality has turned him no, into no, a terrible you're lending filmmaker. way too much gravitas just... <laughs> to this movie, Kathleen. You're actually well, making no, it no. something. I see this movie and everything, but I mean, James Franco was in another movie that just came out on Netflix recently, where Christian. Slater is a porn director, and so James Franco gets more excuses to like make out with dudes, which he has just said that he himself is kind of a gay tease. Like he's not gay. I don't know. I'm just using. Yeah, James well, Franco uh, has has acted but, in some good movies. He's turned in some really yeah. good performances. Great but performance. This combined with his fucking trash adaptation of William Faulkner's novels makes me hate him as a director and really oh, yeah. just yeah. despise everything he stands for. Just like whenever he's put in control of a project, I mean, he just misdirects it. He doesn't know what he's doing. He should just stick with acting. Yeah, yeah. and I think I think Phil that that uh that conversation that you pinpointed in Interior Leather Bar is really like gets to the heart of the his philosophy behind it. And I actually find it to be an abhorrent justification for this movie and for what he does with these actors. Essentially, he, it comes down on him saying that sex acts are not tolerated in the cinema, and especially not gay sex acts. We never see them. We never uh, you know, get exposed to them. And then he proceeds to make a film that is explicitly pornographic. Mm-hmm. And in the world of explicit pornography, there is a, there are, there's plenty of gay sex that you can see at the click yeah. of a mouse, right? There's sure. no... But, like, in terms of actually mainstream cinema, it it's not there because it's explicit pornography. It's, like, his whole... Yeah. His entire... Uh, uh, premise is flawed because he is not. It, it, it's apples and oranges, you know. He's like, he's like, well, they won't let this on a, a, a Cineplex movie screen. It's like, well, no, they don't let. They don't all, yeah. also don't show vaginal penetration on a Cineplex movie screen. Yeah. It's, a, it's a completely <laughs> empty argument on his part. And what I really couldn't stand about him, and maybe Kathleen saw this part because she saw the first couple minutes of the film, but when he is 
he appears in the beginning to justify or explain what the movie's about, and you can just tell that he <laughs> is acting, even when he's supposed to be yeah. portraying himself as yep. being off the cuff. Like he's like you, he he just reeks of affectation yep. and insincerity. Yeah. I had to turn it off. It was and it was a while. It was when it first came out that I watched it because I, you know, every once in a while when I watch Cruising again. <laughs> I look around to see whether other people were talking about it or thinking about it. And I guess it was just a couple of years after the DVD came out. But I was mad at James Franco because I realized that he was going to be people's first introduction to cruising. And that was a terrible way to yeah. talk about it. Not that and anyone I, really has to watch it. <laughs> we I, all need an introduction to cruising. This I is think. the first time that I've talked to people about cruising who I didn't watch it with them. So right, right. I, <laughs> And I just I also want to say, he it. he really failed, James Franco really failed with this movie he made because he does not even directly address, or indirectly address, the missing footage from the movie Cruising. No. Nope. No. At, he, he, he doesn't just, address it at all. He just filmed some really half-assed attempt at something that is stylistically similar to Cruising but doesn't even hit the mark. I mean, they, they even reproduced the uh, dancing scene that I referenced in, in my opening statements in this oh, podcast. Yeah. I love that scene. That's it's a great scene in the, in, in cruising. It's actually fun and bizarre and funny. Uh, but it's one of the only two scenes in the movie where Al Pacino actually smiles. Like he looks, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's having a good time. Well, he's, he's not oh, feeling quite ahead. as tortured or, or he's too deep undercover at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he just likes amyl nitrate in a handkerchief. Well, yeah, that too, that too. <laughs> uh, but they they try to reproduce this in Interior Leather Bar, and they just, like, Val, who's the Pacino stand-in in this film, looks so intensely uncomfortable, which in a sense <laughs> is the way that the character is supposed to feel. But Val just... Like throughout this entire film, it's clear that he is like he's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know no, what's going on. Those are verbatim words out of his mouth to Franco. <laughs> Franco says, I don't know what you're doing. But he says he says, I believe in you, Franco, and your artistic vision. Like he says that to Franco, and Franco like Franco doesn't have the responsibility to like say to himself, this guy has put himself in my hands. I need to treat him with care and respect. Instead, he has this. He basically humiliates his friend. He fucking does on on film, in order to make a statement that isn't even a coherent, logical. Like the climax uh, of this movie is how Val, who is has so much integrity, and and he and he really trusts Franco and wants to do good even though he's uncomfortable. Yeah. The movie, the climax, the defining moment of this stupid one-hour film is watching this poor guy Val get completely humiliated and demoralized uh, in the scene where he it looks is so explicitly uncomfortable in this dancing scene with these other guys. And I honestly thought that this was trying, this was supposed to be some kind of statement about how young actors come to L.A., with serious intentions of, of doing good work and they get caught up in this, the underbelly and they end up doing crappy roles or even pornography just to get by. And Franco has made a film, uh, I haven't seen it, but it's called Sonny. It's one of his early films yeah. where he plays a male prostitute. And I believe that, and I really shouldn't talk too much about it because I haven't seen it, but Franco has played roles before where 
you know, he has these sexual scenes with other men and he himself, I don't know if he considers himself gay or not, but to, to voice that on this, on this other actor, I thought was extremely irresponsible, ethically irresponsible and cruel, not even yeah. good art. And yeah. it just like an insult to, to the, to him, just an insult to Val an insult to the audience an insult to people who make documentaries an, an insult, insult to, to the Weiss, terrible movie crazy Baker, anybody who does <laughs> cinema verite. Yeah. Mean, it's total, it's worthless. It's garbage. It shouldn't even be on Netflix. How many, yeah. I, there's so many great movies. I can't even stream on Netflix, but I can stream interior leather bar, which yeah. is garbage. Yeah. Wow. Rango lobby stronger than it should be. <laughs> I'm really, really deeply apologetic that no. I ended up forcing you guys to watch that. Okay. Just a, I'm actually very careless, glad that I did. A careless text <laughs> that had no <laughs> inflection to it, so it wasn't yeah. like, oh, and don't forget interior next time, Kathy, bar, just but... put, a, put a sideways winky face next to it, <laughs> okay. and then I'll understand. We, sad, we need sad that. Uh, we need that that sarcasm font now more than ever, right? Yes. The backwards yeah. italics. <laughs> but talking about pornography, this is a very brief yeah. sidetrack. When I worked in that video store and we had cruising, we also had a, a porn room. Like sure. I rented sure. porn to people. And there was a video uh, in the gay porn section that was called Rank. And it was part leather fetish and part armpit fetish gay porn. Uh, yeah. And I revisited that in <laughs> for this. For yeah. this. I was like, do I remember what it was? I don't know. So <laughs> the thing about your, how, was how was it? Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't what I remembered it being. It was more <laughs> low budget. Yeah. But it wasn't exploitative because I feel like people were getting paid and sure, they yeah. like armpits. So yeah. just a, a sweaty kind of porn. Anyway, uh, <laughs> in cruising, there's no option. There's no internet. There's no yeah. even video rental. You mm. just have like video booths and you have going cruising. And so that's a more kind of vulnerable situation to be in. Like you have to go out and see people to know that it's real. You yeah. can't just stream it into your room. Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, the fact that it is so accessible and free to anybody is they just have to know how to find it. Uh, that's definitely sort of changed things uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that, um, I, I, it reminds me of my old, my days haunting the video store in my hometown and, uh, on a dare, uh, we, we rented this gay porno called mouth organ and, uh, about harmonicas, no, harmonica no. Fetish. it was, uh, it was, a. Uh, it was just a, it was like a, I didn't watch all of it. But I watched the beginning, and it's just the, the the theme of this one was guys who can go down on themselves, mm -hmm. and it's just Whoa. a collection of these dudes throwing their legs behind their heads and just going to town on themselves, and uh, wow. and it just goes to show that you know life finds a way to uh, <laughs> to satisfy every niche possible, even yeah. without the internet, people were still making it happen. They were satisfying their kinks. That's, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. Humanity yeah. has always figured out a way to do that. 
anyway. I'm, I'm glad that the the scenes that were filmed in the bars weren't actors. They were just dudes who liked those bars. And yeah. So I mean, compared with the people who were protesting it, there were also people who were like, "Well, visibility is good. Let's, you know, I love my bar." Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm Get sure. Video of, I'm yeah. sure that to a modern audience, it probably seems like a lot of that is uh, comically overdone. And I'm sure that there's some cinematic license taken in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the the scene, in terms of like what, mm-hmm. how those bars operated and everything. Uh, but at the same time, as you say, Kathleen, a lot of those bars were those were the people mm-hmm. and the proprietors of the bars who were uh, involved in the filmmaking process. So it wasn't just a film crew coming in and being like, we're going to replace everything with what we imagine this is like. It was mm-hmm. some, there was some Which level of authenticity. Which is what I do feel like about the dialogue. <laughs> like the dialogue yeah. is terrible, but the actual just people being in the bar seems real and fun. It yeah. seemed like a kind of, uh, there was an atmosphere of, of menace, I thought, in a lot of those clubs because they were, they were dark. The music was intense. Uh, nobody seemed to be smiling or enjoying themselves. That I mean, I think they were enjoying themselves, but it just had a very kind of a heavy vibe. And I was just wondering if that was kind of William Friedkin wanting to portray this world as seedy, as dark, and um, and as a source of menace for our hero Steve Burns, as kind of this underworld that he has to infiltrate uh, in order to to save the day. But uh, since I haven't been to any of those clubs in real life, I don't know how accurate they were. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was trying to think of some kind of parallel to it, but like going to punk clubs and so there's not a lot of smiles. There was some, like people there was are... some punk yeah. music in these clubs too. Like oh yeah, yeah. I mean, punk started right or before then and got lots of play sure. in clubs, like mm-hmm. gay clubs. But uh, yeah, I don't know whether Freaking was projecting more men I mean there's the sort of gimp in the corner that is is menacing anytime there's there's a gimp you feel I think for dramatic <laughs> for a dramatic contrast I think he had to because if if this world was you know if like if if they were if they had lots of colored lights and they're playing peppy techno music or something it might have seemed a little bit fun and it wouldn't seem like such a a uh, a dark and like twisted thing that Steve Burns has to do to survive. It might seem like, oh, this is kind of a there's some charm here. Yeah. I mean, but I'm just saying, like, to, for for dramatic purposes, I feel like they had to make it seem like he was making a major sacrifice, that he was in a dangerous world, in order to to to, to provide the dramatic weight. I would say that you're right in that, um, but who knows? Who knows? I guess we got to ask William Friedkin himself. I'll oh, ask man. him when I see him. Ask him on when Saturday, you see him Ramrod. <laughs> yeah. Ramrod. Um, yeah, so I think that that uh, concludes our podcast on the film Cruising. Uh, I would say that it's a fascinating mess of a film. Yeah. Uh, it is fascinating. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's and a great it film. I, I certainly wouldn't say that you need to go out there and see it right away. But if this has been an intriguing podcast for you, um, I would say it's definitely worth your curiosity uh, to take a look. Interior Leather Bar, not so much. You could probably skip that one 
In fact, I encourage yeah, you to. Don't watch um, it. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, cruising is questionable on so many levels in so many different ways uh, <laughs> that it that it almost becomes a, a, a an enigma that's that's worth spending some time with. Um, I can't say at this moment whether I'm going to come back to it, Kathleen, like you have so many times. Uh, but this may be the the time that I sort of put it to rest in my own life. Like now that I've really is this got cathartic it. for you. Do you think this is like kind of? Except for the fact the... I feel like I could talk for another hour about it and sure. then put it to rest. Sure, so sure. I don't know what's going to happen. But <laughs> but yeah, all the times that I've watched it or made people watch it, I've seen different things. But I feel like this puts a cap on it <laughs> but i really appreciate you guys watching it yeah well, no, thank we appreciate you. And, and you we'd love to have you back uh if you want to suggest another film yeah um you know down the road uh we would we'd be you know Thanks. amenable but no more no more james franco vehicles <laughs> nope. yeah yeah unless he does something really great that you want to recommend um <laughs> so you, you can't summarily dismiss james franco from yeah. actually know. you know what i'm going to take that statement back <laughs> Recommend oh. whatever you want, even if it is James Franco, because I had fun crashing him. That's <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to bring him back. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we hope that you will join us for our next podcast when we will be talking about T2, not Judgment Day. No, no, yeah. Phil, no. Okay. Train Spotting Two, a uh. sequel that I never in my life thought that. Would go, would be a thing I was ever talking about, yeah. um, but it, it's out. It's in theaters right now. It is directed by Danny Boyle. It has the original cast pretty much intact. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be an interesting uh, thing to talk about. Kathleen, thanks again uh, for bringing us cruising. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about it. We really My appreciate pleasure. it. My uh, pleasure. And folks out there listening, we will catch you next time. See you then.